Season 6 of the CMO Suite is presented by Bid for Media. Bid for Media is the leader in providing biddable media solutions across all forms of media, including traditional, digital, social, experiential, and more. It's like eBay for media, with choices from radio and TV advertising to OTT, trade desk, display advertising, influencer marketing, and more. No sign-up fees, no boring training, no bullshit. Visit them at bidformedia.com. Season 6 of the CMO Suite is also sponsored in part by Uconnex. Uconnex provides managed services in the programmatic space for brands and agencies across the U.S. and internationally. It uniquely provides true transparency in the programmatic space by sharing how much of each campaign actually goes to publishers, platform, and how much is profit. If you are looking to better understand true working dollars or are just looking for an audit of your existing digital partnerships, visit them at uconnex.com. That's Y-O-U-C-O-N-N-E-X.com. And Winmo. Winmo is one of the leading sales prospecting tools that delivers the information you need to identify opportunities and close more deals with advertisers and agencies. Search brands, agencies, or contacts and leverage Winmo's smart filters to pare down thousands of prospects based on annual revenue, job title, locations, mobile occurrence, planning periods, and more. Visit them today at winmo.com. And finally, No Kid Hungry. With season six, we'll be completing our 100th episode of the CMO Suite, and we're proud to announce we'll be compiling highlights of our previous guests for a book called CMO Suites, Recipes for Success, with proceeds to benefit the No Kid Hungry organization. Help feed hungry kids by donating today at nokidhungry.org. And don't forget to visit Marketing Cast to catch any previous seasons you might have missed of the CMO Suite, or to check out other amazing podcasts in the industry. Once again, that's marketingcasts.com. Now, let's start the show. You're in the CMO Suite, the podcast for marketers who want to be in the know, presented by Connectivity Holdings. Oh my God, here we go. We are, as many of you know by now, we have just launched season six. We're going to hit 100 episodes this season. I'm so ridiculously, I'm going to pat myself on the back for a moment. I'm so freaking proud of myself to have done that. And my guest today, uh, what is really interesting uh, is to be able to talk a little bit about not only my history with him, but the fact that he was one of the first people when I thought about doing this podcast, he and I actually kind of kicked it around a little bit. He had his own idea for a podcast. We'll find out whether that ever got up and launched or if he's working too many hours to be able to do that. But I was like, screw it, I'm going to do it. And so lo and behold, uh, Matt Wilson, President and Chief Operating Officer of Eastport Holdings. Matt, welcome finally to my podcast. How you doing, bro? Doing good, man. Um, you know, the beauty of this crazy industry is in many ways, it feels like a big industry. Obviously, there's thousands and thousands of people that work in it, but it also feels small sometimes. And for me, maybe it's the way I'm wired, but sometimes I feel like you meet some people in this world through whatever those circumstances are. And then you have kind of these two ways you could go down this lane. You could either kind of go down this lane of like, yeah, this, these guys just are not my kind of people, or these guys or girls are my people. And so we met under interesting circumstances. You guys almost bought our agency. Uh, you guys ended up deciding, no, we don't want to do business with this guy or whatever that was. And yet we've stayed friends all these, I'd say all these years. I mean, we've met in person multiple times. We don't talk every week, but when we talk for me, Matt, it feels like I just saw you last week is what it feels like. You got, there's, there's a ton of energy and particularly with people that you find in the workforce. They're not competitors. They're not really partners, but they all share the same stripes across their back. And they came out of it um, smiling, happy, healthy, and mentally prepared for whatever's next. This business is like that. You find your swim lane and you, you just have to be present at every moment. There's so many people right now that are trying to dive out and do different things. And I, I applaud that, but I'm like, you know, stick in the lane and, and all you need are really five 
great years. And I think you've had five. I think you've had your five. I'm one of those that are now outside of my lane a little bit, but that's for its own reasons. We can dig into that for a few minutes. But at the same time, I think one of the things that you just said there, which again is kind of the point of like whether you do business with somebody or you don't do business with somebody, sometimes you just run into these people that you're like, you know what, I'm going to do business with this person. That doesn't mean that we have to have a financial relationship. It just means it's a person that I can, again, male or female, I can pick up the phone and go, hey, this thing just happened to me. Like, what do you think? And there's no there's no skin in it for either one of us. You're, you know, you'll probably never make millions off of me. You never know. I'm definitely never going to make millions off of you. You're way too tight. Um, but you're a person that I know I can kind of pick up the phone and and you'll take my call sometimes. And that's greatly, greatly Really appreciating you took my call to, to jump in and do the podcast, which uh, I'm glad you finally made it. Well, don't you find that people can make decisions or yourself can make decisions on what you think the psychological profile of somebody is like within a minute or two? You know, we've seen all the charlatans in our business, people trying to sell us something, people trying to buy stuff from us, you know, the, the different clients, whatever. And I think, you know, when we looked at your business, it was interesting because it was the first time anybody had ever actually walked clients in to sort of a due diligence meeting to provide testimonials about who you were. Never seen that done ever, ever, ever. I, I may not suggest that it didn't work. Um, or maybe it did. You know, let me, so let me hit on that. And, and it sounds like that's actually where you were going to go. Maybe it did work because the reality is we might not have been a perfect fit. Every time we've now gone back and looked at potentially selling what I'll call kind of those two other companies, it just never, it never felt 100% right. It always felt like I was going to end up having to work for somebody else, which you often have to when you go through the, that process. And gosh, if that didn't, again, teach me a lot about a lot of things. We did take capital um, with one of our companies, Uconnect. Uh, you know, when we started really building that up, we took outside capital for that. We didn't sell it entirely. We ended up buying some of those pieces back. But again, I think ultimately sometimes the right thing happens, whatever that's supposed to be. And if I had sold, maybe I wouldn't be on the path that I'm on right now. And that path is just feels so exciting to me. So exciting. I really believe to me. in that. I, you know, and, and you'll, you know, water seeks its own level. And, you know, we were at the end of our acquisition hunt. It was kind of like, all right, we got to shut it down and just sort of absorb what we have. Obviously, you're a smart guy. No media in and out can uh, juggle the hustle is what I call it. And that's what you need to do. I always say that if you're not sitting on the edge of your seat, you're not paying attention in this business. You have to be on the hustle. I mean, don't you think in terms of knowing technology and trying to sell technology. Absolutely. It's all it's almost all tech now at this point, which again is kind of the craziness of it. I read an article the other day, thank God I had actually finally started to jump into tech about a year and a half ago. But the article was like, look, if you're an agency or you're anybody in this business and you're not thinking tech first, you're already a year behind everybody else and you better kind of jump in that space. Let's talk about your trajectory for just a second if we can, because you sure. you weren't tech, but boy, you started off in a in a crazy place in some ways. You started off in politics. Right, I think yeah. I saw that you were an assistant press secretary uh, way back in the day, back in '81, uh, for a short amount of time. But uh, boy, if politics hasn't been kind of uh, cr- crazy almost ever since, how did you jump from that into kind of? It looks like you kind of jumped into the hotel business, or at least that industry. Yeah, I had you know in school, University of Florida. I I wanted to be a broadcaster and I wanted to be a DJ. I couldn't get a a job at the the college station, because it was filled with all the people you want to beat the crap out of, all the brown nosers. You know, they say, oh, yeah, you'll, you'll be able to pull teletype off. I'm like, no. So I went out and I got a job with uh, WGGG. And my, my name was Matt Davis. And I worked the morning shifts, like 4 to 8 a.m. And sometimes I wouldn't sleep. 
But what I discovered was something that got me my first job, which was I, I walked into the Republican National uh, Committee. I said, who needs somebody that knows radio? And what we did was we divided up at the time. That's how you bought you know, radio DMAs in, in Virginia for Warner and in Alabama for Senator Denton. And then we'd poll every month what's happening in those markets where the issues. I'd tape a live broadcast, quote unquote live, with the senators and we'd ship it out. And we kept these guys in play forever. And that was my first taste of if you if you can invent something, you you have a, a runway. Marriott picked up on what I was doing, got into the sales promotion business, and then spent a mini career after that at J. Walter Thompson during Martin Sorrell's days. Learned a lot. I, I was a weed. I was just an absolute weed, but they Martin Sorrell liked to hire young people and keep young people in place and, and get rid of the glass ceiling, you know, the, the aristocracy. So I learned a lot about what he did. And that really has implicated that first uh, company that I bought in Columbus, Ohio, bought into a partnership there and then sold to Eastport. And now I'm the chief executive officer of uh, Eastport. So we're running nine companies now. Let's hit a couple things in there because we just jumped through 25 years of your life pretty fast there. But one of those things that you talked about was radio. It's crazy how, gosh, I mean, a medium that's 100 years old, I guess, maybe at this point or something crazy like that. I went in radio first and it just, it, you really can cut your teeth in that industry. You, you've got to be nimble. You've got to be scrappy. You've got to be creative. You're not sitting back looking at, you know, giant TV ratings and just saying either buy it or not. But what a great, what a great way to be able to kind of just get into the industry itself. And then you talked about your time at Jay Walter and, and, and with uh, Martin. Did you, did you meet him during your time there? Have you met him since? Um, I, I've met him at the Mirren conference. I'm a big believer in what Brent Hodgins has built on Mirren Live and the CEO conferences. And he had Sir Martin talk. And this was after Sir Martin left WPP. Yeah, this was a few um, years ago. And it, he, quite, he had, he had his, his grease up. He was like ready to, to use S4 Capital as his next thing. And I met him there. I remember um, that. I remember him going and, and the whole departure thing. And I remember him kind of, again, just being this person that was like, I'm, I'm actually going to show you guys that I'm still relevant. And, and he was He's not going to do it. He's going to do it. His, his stock price now is like nine bucks. And uh, it started at two ninety eight and changed, something like that. I'm going to buy on the next dip. But what I learned from the guy was, because everybody thought, you know, he, he, he did WPP, Wire and Plastics Products. Everybody understood he was the fifth Saucy or the third Saucy or some Saatchi. Um, and it was their CFO. He bought into this English company that made wire plastic baskets for the grocery industry. And I believe they had land, valuable land. He leveraged that into his first purchase. And then he just, boom, showed the leverage machine, took it public, paid the debt. He wasn't just a financial guy. He put emphasis on what I'm going to cut out of you. Meaning like he said, look, we're sublease half your space. You know, no longer you're going to be in glass buildings with marble floors. So sublease half your space got rid of a, a whole layer of VPs that had been around drinking martinis forever and ever and ever and ever. A number of other financial efficiencies. And then he said, I'm going to put it back to my people. Put a dynamic individual in charge of, of creative. James Patterson was part of that crew. And Jim Patterson, obviously, is a, the best-selling author. He put a great person in account service and sales, Steve Bowen. He also recognized and found young people and, and brought them into these training programs. I was lucky enough to go. I didn't get selected first round. 
I'm telling you that. I got selected se- second round because somebody, I don't know, death in the family, I was like, all right, I'm in. And they send you to Wisconsin for a week and they broke you down and then they built you up and you walked out of there like, I'm the next generation of J. Walter Thompson. So his whole idea is like, I'm going to emphasize creative. So he eventually became, he had everybody focused on the most creative and effective advertising and he won a ton, a ton of Effie's. That was his vision. He raised the next generation of leaders. And I'm ripping a page out of his book for eSport. Absolutely. So you, let's talk about eSport. You you ended up buying in at SBC and ultimately uh, uh, Bubba is, is, was the initial owner, I, I guess I would say, of eSport, uh, who I had met several years ago. Decided to buy you guys and that was that your initial introduction to, to eSport? Yeah, they had, they had called us up and said, hey, we want to handle your media. What we'll do is you give us the media, we write you a check every month. And we had too many complicated contracts with our clients, big lots and Bed Bath & Beyond, whatever. And we, we passed on it. And then they decided, look, let's do a roll-up because there was financial arbitrage at the, at the time that still exists, which is if you can borrow money at less than 4% or 5%, depending on the investor class and the debt stack, you can roll something up, pay debt down over time, amortize debt over time, and then sell at a value. And these businesses can turn, 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 turn. And really, it doesn't affect anything other than you know the, the leaders that you put in place. So we were one of their first roll-ups. The people are all still the same. And so when you think about this industry again, whether it's consolidation, the largest sizes, when I looked at what you guys were doing on the Eastport uh, holding side, you know, I would say from my perspective, that was a, at the time, a smaller holding group, but it was also my first introduction to what a holding group kind of was beyond the, you know, the big boys. And it, it, again, it at least created this mindset on my side of, gosh, maybe there's something to this at an even smaller level, which is what we kind of ultimately ended up kind of building That's a little bit to did. some extent. So talk about the relationship that you you guys have with your clients and those chief marketing officers that are out there. I know when I interviewed Fernando Machado, who at the time was at Burger King, we're actually going to have him back in on this podcast as we Good, man. He's Activision, bro. He's great. He's over at Activision. He's just such a great guy. I, I know, again, in even coming down to see him and having that conversation with you, you guys have always had just such a great relationship with Burger King with 500 Degrees. And so talk about the holding group just a little bit and maybe, again, how that relationship has evolved even as you guys have picked up different parts and mergers. H- how have you managed to navigate that, uh, even a new CMO coming in in, the, in that in that situation? Yeah. So, I mean, the, if, if you take a look at where the market's going, our pocket is right in the middle of two extremes. One is to the left, which are small, independent, full-service agencies. And there are like 6,000 of them in the country. Um, they may do a number of things. They may have personal relationships with auto dealers, whatever it is. But eventually, they're going to be weeded out in the next two to three years. And here's why. The price of admission is getting too expensive for talent, for data books, feeds, whatever it takes to propel a technology business, that's what you need. They're going to get weeded out. And on the other side, you got the big ad cartels who have just tremendous overhead. Uh, they dumped a lot of people during COVID. Uh, right now, they're still surviving on a lot of contractor business. It's, they'll turn their, their, their histories around, but it's going to take 18 to 24 months. Uh, but you'll see everybody starting to reposition and repackage who they are. So we're in this little sweet spot. We're just a different hold co because we don't have we, we have like eight people that run the thing. We have a CFO, we've got a chief operating officer, you got me, we've got an HR person, we've got some, some billing clerks, and we let these guys operate with like six or seven key metrics. And we're in the field all the time. We're on the business all the time. So we don't like, you know, if you take MDC Stagwell, nothing against those guys, but, you know, they're making a bet 
you know, on the ad cartel side, that they can create the super energy agency in their World Trade Center offices in New York that, you know, can create and combine these, these groups inside their, their agencies. They're, they're loaded with debt. I think, I think Mark Penn will do it, but everybody has the challenges. I just don't have to worry about, you know, corp- corporate overlords and neither do my presidents in the field. And then if, if you take a look to answer your question about the CMOs and, and what they're looking for, you know, there are a variety of personalities, obviously. You know, Fernando is obviously a guy that understands how to ride a cultural wave. He did that with perfection and he had a great time because you've got, you know, this organization, RBI, Restaurant Brands International, led uh, today by Jose Sill. He's a genius too. But he's in the field all the time. He understands the franchise moment. They were able to invest behind all the innovations and food innovations that RBI was taking place in Tim Hortons, Popeyes, and Burger King. And so Fernando would find these opportunities like in Europe or whatever. He introduced the moldy burger. I mean, he's, he and the, all of the work that he represents in the team at, uh, that still exists at RBI are probably the most heralded creative advertisers on the planet. Somebody will, it may be Activision. He may come after uh, the, the record. Our like relationships the with them deal either in big ideas or on below the line activities. We like below the line activities. Not to say that we aren't creative. We shoot every single burger, Whopper, excuse me, every food product, every cup of coffee for Tim Hortons, every piece of chicken for Popeyes. But where you make money, where you really have longevity is the ability to fulfill complicated tasks that they can't do for themselves. I don't care if I never produce another television commercial as long as I live, but I want to I fulfill 30,000 images a week out to screens uh, across the RBI system. It does feel like they're having fun. You know, I, that was an element that I feel like he exuded was this sense of, Yep, we need to be in the tech space. Yep, we need to understand arbitrage. We got to make sure that the you know the spots are dotted and the lines are crossed. But damn, let's, let's at least have some fun. You know, let's take some pokes so at some people. At so good at that. You know, and you had to deliver though, and you have to usually deliver on impossible deadlines. And that's what it takes when you play at scale. So when you work like we're doing work right now for Facebook through 1035, our multicultural shop, and we do a lot of the production work on the back end for their program called Elevate, which is teaching underserved communities and Black-owned businesses how to use Facebook as an advertising and marketing system. When you play at that level, at that level of scale, it's beyond drinking from a fire hose. You have to do it. I mean, we're talking double shifts. So Fernando called up and said, we're going to turn, and this is, I think, his first tie with Activision, we're going to turn a Burger King into Burger Town, which is a sort of a wink-wink innuendo for Burger King inside uh, Call of Duty. And so in 30 days, we converted everything to Burger King. We brought in um, uh, FaZe Apex, who's a great gamer. You know, he makes like $30,000 in appearance, did gaming. And it was all about trying to build awareness for uh, Grubhub, which is you got gamers in the basement, we want to feed them Whoppers. And so it was a great, but you got 30 days, here's some money. Don't say you can do it if you can't. Yeah, a lot of pressure. 
But again, there's probably a blessing and a beauty in the size that you guys are because you at least have, again, some of those necessary resources to be able to kind of lean on some people. That You also have to have buy-in from your team. And I think that's another thing that you've always done a really nice job on. I'm sure all of the chief marketing officers and the VPs of marketing that deal with you guys and your team, doesn't mean everybody's going to be perfect. Doesn't mean everybody's going to you know always bat a thousand. But it it does require that you be big enough that that especially today, which we talked a little bit about, you know, off the air, people have to feel like this is where their future is and they have to feel like there's an opportunity. And to your point of those kind of smaller agency groups, that can feel hard sometimes. Like, okay, you know, we're we're ten people or we're fifteen people. There's only there's only two chiefs at the top. And so at some point you 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 do end up either running into I've done everything I can here and so what else can I do or who's going to teach me what's you can next. Specialize, you can go deep in specialization. And there's probably always a role for, you know, the local regional guy that can do a branding initiative for you know, regional business or something like that. But the world has changed. I'm sick of hearing it, but it is true. It is a tech world. In fact, you know, the RBI folks, you know, Jose Sell said, you know, we're, we're a digital company that makes food. And that kind of changes mindsets of like, all right, what do you do? So it's on the horizon. You know, culture is a big issue in agencies. There's all sorts of things that are exciting happening in the business. So you add in the pandemic into that. And again, it, it throws a whole new wrinkle, especially again for some veterany guys like I am. You know, I was talking to a, a, a contemporary of mine this morning just about the fact that I'm I have completely changed over the last year, year and a half. I was the kind of guy that was like, everybody needs to be in the office at eight. You got to stick around till the work is done. You got to figure that out. If even if there was somebody that was talent, I was like, you still got to come in because we have this cultural thing, and I just can't navigate that way anymore. Nor can my teams navigate that way. Hell, I had to finally download. We're, we're building out a tech stack. I had to finally download Slack. I was like the <laughs> last guy. I was like begging my teams, guys, please. I have so many other ways I have to communicate. Please do not make me download this freaking thing. I don't get it. It, it. Can't I just text you? And lo and behold, we're in the middle of this tech build. And uh, you know, one of the backend engineers is like, yeah, I don't use text. I'm like, what about email? He's like, no, I only use Slack. And he's that important. I mean, I hate to say that. It's the hardest part for me because everything else I've ever built, I felt like, Matt, I could jump in and do the work myself if I absolutely had to. Like if everything else absolutely. failed, screw it. I'll be in there. I'll finish the proposal. I'll do the pitch. I'll do whatever. I can't do this tech shit. I don't, I, I, I'm a, I'm a, totally agree. a crappy designer and I, I look at code and I'm like, what the hell is that? I'd rather learn Russian. I'd rather go out with one of my Russian girlfriends and have her teach me Russian. I'm going to Code Ninja and I sit around with 13 year olds. And you just have to always sharpen your saw. You have to do it. I mean, culturally, you've got 20 offices and, and a majority of them are like three, six person field staff because I like to be close to clients, you know, all in bed in clients with, you know, there was a report on, uh, I think CRB, CBRE, something, whoever the real estate company is. They did um, in major cities, they track in September, in September, a little bit in September, but mostly in August, the uh, entry key swipes at uh, their offices that they lease people uh, to. And it's like 25% occupied, 33% occupied. And it's like, tells you that we can't have an okay boomer response when, when people say, I'm not coming back to the office. We just have to negotiate with landlords because there's there's a, a bus coming. We're going to figure it out. Every building is at 25% occupancy. That's that's just silly. But we have to liberate the people that are working for us. You just have to have different reasons to bring people back. Like if it's a hybrid work environment, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, or Tuesday, Thursday, whatever works. I do believe you have to draw people in 10 to 4. They can work the hours that they want, but like work start... Uh, and collab on Monday and Wednesdays is, is going to be quality assurance and check-ins and Friday, check Fridays or whatever. 
or, you know, I'm going to challenge you to think about this for the next few days. The workforce, the young workforce, particularly in the digital space and advertising, they grew up on Slack and they grew up on their devices. Um, and we're kind of catching up. But if you create a cultural environment where it's like Peloton, I don't do Peloton, but I understand what it is. You know, you watch a tablet, you exercise, you're communicating with the teacher, you're communicating with social people, you're meeting people offline. If you create leaders who can interact with your your cultural vibe in that way electronically, you'll hold them together. That's what I'm experimenting with right now in a couple of our offices. We're going to have a production value. We're going to find the most impressive people to get up and talk about kickoff meetings and talk about benefits. And don't forget the $100 credit that you got on uh, your health club uh, monthly charge. You have to create that environment. That's what's waiting for us. Not everybody coming back to the office. They're not going to come back. I think there's a beauty ultimately in some ways in what is happening because for those of us that are still at an age where we're still working, whether that's because you choose to or because you have to or because you still want to make sure that you're giving something back to this industry, it's a blessing to me to have gone through this because the reality is I probably would have worked until I was 60, 65, still with that mentality of you got to be here, you got to be there. And I would have missed a lot. I would have ended up being, again, one of those dads that my kids would be in college and they would talk about the fact that you never took me to a dentist appointment, dad, or you never managed to do this. And I feel like I get to spend a lot of time with them, but the reality is this changes the, the dynamics for those of us well, we still have our health, still have our health. You know, the fact that you and I can talk like this and I'm, you know, I was telling you before I'm, I'm headed out West. I've got a couple of conventions I'm going to, but I'm also traveling. I can work like this and it, it actually can work our business. And I'm, it, I'm, I think you might say the same. It's not the same, but the revenue's right around, you know, around the same about what we're putting into it, you know, staffing wise. And the work for the most part is getting done at about the same pace it probably was when everybody was sitting in a cube. And I also don't have to put up with the bullshit of somebody didn't, you know, change the toilet paper and Jill didn't, you know, replace all that stuff. That minutia stuff just was a killer, a killer for me. And so again, whether you're on the agency side or whether you're on the, the CMO side, I think, I think everybody's going through that. And at the same time, it opens up talent to everybody. And so you might end up with talent in a market you you don't even have a physical office in, but they do really great work. Yeah, we we're you know recruiting has opened up. You know, so everybody's like, God, people are you know I can't deny somebody that's going to get a twenty five thousand dollar raise that makes fifty. I can try and pull them back with a great career path that's going to get them close to that money in six months, and then a three year track to be making one hundred and fifty. And you have to provide those kind of advantages, but the same forces that are pulling people out are the same forces that allow us to recruit. So we can be that place for somebody else that we haven't met yet. Recruiting is a lot easier too. LinkedIn, I use a lot of LinkedIn recruiting, word of mouth, all of that. And then when you onboard somebody, you have to use the new tools to onboard them. It has to be like Peloton. It can't be, I'm going to send you some PDFs of your, your health savings account to sign up and then send it back to me. doesn't work like that anymore. Well, and so maybe we can put a button on that in this episode a little bit, and then I want to ask you if you've done your podcast yet sure. or not. By, yep. by saying just that, which is, you know, again, one of the hardest part for, for companies in the past to have chief marketing officers and then have all these teams underneath those CMOs was the fact that they wanted everybody in the, build, you know, in the building in White Plains, New York, and everybody had to be there and their entire team had to be there. But again, that, that push for in-housing, maybe this also is continuing to evolve that. It is allowing some CMOs to free their hands up a little bit and say, 
look, if my if this team that's on my team can be somewhere else and work somewhere else, then why can't we pull in areas of specialization from an agency standpoint? Why can't we pull in partners from that standpoint? And that's really what this is becoming. It is becoming partnerships. It is becoming areas of specialization where in-housing maybe isn't as appealing as it used to be in the past. And it's certainly, to some extent, may prove much more expensive. Yeah, I, I, this, And I'm biased because we're on the outside and we provide professional services. But I've had uh, presidents of very big companies, CEOs of very big companies on the, on the cusp of, of considering in-housing for various reasons. It's more efficient, save money, whatever. And my response always is this, that's not marketing. If, if you have, if you create a bureaucracy of 250 people to do things, content, whatever, running around trying to resize a JPEG or saluting the last content launch, that's not marketing, that's tasking. You know, you need people that are in charge of innovation, in charge of distribution channels, in charge of driving the business forward, the people that can actually make a difference with consumers, that's marketing. And what happens is a lot of people that build the in-house groups, they leave in 17 months because they're going to go build it again somewhere else. Uh, we passed muster with uh, Facebook. No, uh, yeah, well, Facebook we talked about, but Microsoft recently, where the Microsoft in-house video team could not produce in the amount of time and budget given and quality a few of the videos that they started us out with for Azure. And then all of a sudden it went from five videos, 10 videos, 15 videos to 20 to 25. And they don't have to worry about it. You know, we want them thinking about reaching out and doing their audience work. It's a battle. You know, I will never win an argument of somebody that has already created an in-house group. I will help a client do it. If a client wants to like start it up, I'll be the first in line and say, look, I'll help you do it. I'll in-house my team, and then you can draw us down over a couple of years, and I can guarantee you we'll still be doing work with that company. And again, there's a lot of nimbleness now that's been introduced by some of these COVID elements. Again, you and I are doing a podcast right now. I used to do all these from New York or Los Angeles in person, and here we are. It just feels fairly normal, fairly natural. It's not the same as being able to sit across from you, but at the same time, if you do good work, you do good work, whether you're you know, you're know, paid this way or you're paid that way. So listen, last question for you. What's yes, uh, what's going on with the podcast you talked about a few years ago? Have you found the time yeah, for that? Yeah, sizzle, or? fizzle, sizzle, fizzle on my end. Um, I... I I fall prey to having great ideas sometimes and just being able to like punt if I can't get to them. I bought all the equipment that you recommended and the idea was 20 good summers because as I, as I enter my sixties, I'm, I know I'm uh, not mortal anymore. Uh, anybody that's like 30 to 48 thinks they're still immortal. But I know I got 20 good summers of activity left, and I bet you there's a bunch of people that want to listen to stuff. And that was the premise. That's what I want to still do. I uh, still may do that starting next year. We've got a lot of great opportunities in the market space right now. I'm talking to a few global companies um, in terms of partnerships. And that's the next thing is because I think global companies, particularly Asia and Europe, that are still suffering through uh, COVID, their, their economies haven't recovered as quickly. And if another variant, that's going to be a problem. But they want to hedge their bets and build franchise networks into the U.S. So there's lots of really cool big thoughts, but it's also like at the end of the day, client needs to do a photo shoot or a video shoot. I'm I'm their their Huckleberry. Got to jump in there though, Matt. 
Time is short. Time is short. I know. We want that content. Show us how it's done. Listen, Matt Wilson, (laughs) CEO for Eastport Holdings, I greatly, greatly appreciate you spending some time with me. I love you guys. I miss you. I miss Bubba tremendously. He's just such a a good dude. Uh, And thank you for for taking some of your own time to at least appear on my podcast this season of the CMO Suite. Thanks for hanging out in the CMO Suite. The podcast for marketers who want to be in the know. Presented by Connectivity Holdings. You're a C-level manager. You shouldn't have to know the difference between behavioral or contextual targeting. But your agency should. UConnect provides brands and biddable teams direct access to platforms like the Trade Desk, Google, Amazon, Facebook, OTT, and more. Their U.S.-based traders can train your in-house team or provide complete transparency with no minimums and CPM-based service pricing for true transparency, something Mighty Hive, The Trade Desk, and Centro simply don't offer. Tired of being the smartest one in the room? Reach out to UConnex today for a free demo. UConnex, the world's leader in true, transparent, biddable media. Season 6 of the CMO Suite is presented by Bid for Media. Bid for Media is the leader in providing biddable media solutions across all forms of media, including traditional, digital, social, experiential, and more. It's like eBay for media. Choices from radio and TV advertising to OTT, trade desk, display advertising, influencer marketing, and more. No sign-up fees, no boring training, no bullshit. Visit them at bidformedia.com. And Winmo. Winmo is one of the leading sales prospecting tools that delivers the information you need to identify opportunities and close more deals with advertisers and agencies. Search brands, agencies, or contacts and leverage Winmo's smart filters to pare down thousands of prospects based on annual revenue, job title, locations, mobile occurrence, planning periods, and more. Visit them today at winmo.com. And finally, No Kid Hungry. With season six, we'll be completing our 100th episode of the CMO Suite, and we're proud to announce we'll be compiling highlights of our previous guests for a book called CMO Suites, Recipes for Success, with proceeds to benefit the No Kid Hungry organization. Help feed hungry kids by donating today at nokidhungry.org.